As you will recall, the Johnson family spent most of the merry, merry month of May in the UK. I'll share a little of that time, uh, trusting that it will lead us into our texts for today. May is a beautiful month anywhere, and no less in the UK. Wherever we went as that month went on, we were reminded again and again that something was going on. There was something in the air. Something was coming. An important event was to be remembered, and the whole nation was poised not just to celebrate, but to share that celebration with the whole world. Now, the whole year of 2012 is set aside for this celebration, but the date of the specific event was the 2nd of June, 1952. If you had just bought a television that year, as our family did, and if you are not one and a half years old, as I was, you might recall seeing something of that event as it happened. The coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, who had acceded to the thrones of seven countries, one of them being Canada, upon the death of her father, King George VI, in February of that year. If you cannot remember that event, the 60th anniversary, the Diamond Jubilee uh, celebration, is going on regardless. There are flags everywhere, pictures of Her Majesty and the Royals, life-size cutouts of Her Majesty and the Royals, including the Royal Corgis, teapots and biscuit boxes bearing her image. In all the churches, Westminster Abbey and at St. Paul's, And at the other places of worship, Selfridges, John Lewis, and Harrods, the event was marked in a festive and joyous way. One of the days we were there, actually unbeknownst to us, uh, Wikipedia related, after performing in the Diamond Jubilee pageant at Windsor Castle, members of the equestrian musical ride at the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, RCMP, on the 23rd of May at the Queen's request took part in the changing of the guard as they formed the Queen's lifeguard outside Buckingham Palace for 24 hours. Said by the contingent's commander to be, quote, a way for Canada and the Mounties to salute Her Majesty the Queen in her diamond jubilee year, unquote. It was the second time the RCMP had performed the task, the first being in 1897 as part of the diamond jubilee celebrations for Queen Victoria. I go on uh, because the topic for today is royalty, and we may look at that topic from different points of view depending upon our connection to the concept and our experience of it. Regardless, as a living symbol of a nation, one who can bring people together regardless of ethnicity, gender, age, and very significantly party politics, there is nothing like having a head of state who is appointed and not elected, and royalty will fulfill that task nicely. The fact that Her Majesty clearly loves doing a job, which she has done more to recast in its definition than anyone who's occupied it, focusing it on service, on the responsibilities of office, and not on the privileges, has made her a beloved example of devotion, and that is an example that can apply to all her subjects and to the nations beyond. Now, this long reminiscence is occasioned not just by the calendar, 
but by the lectionary. Today's readings take us to that time in the history of the people of God, of the church, when the people were clamoring, then as now, for a royal ruler to take the destiny of their tribal confederation in hand and make of it a great nation, as we hear in the first book of the kings, the first book of the prophet Samuel. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Give us a king. Up to now, Israel had muddled through as a confederacy of 12 tribes in as many or more geographical domains. Each tribe had its own collection of ideological, theological, and political leaders. They were more or less equal. If the king of a neighboring nation, say the Philistines or the Amorites, Ammonites declared war on one of these tribal entities, then an appeal to the others to come to the rescue would be made and responded to as the state of the sometimes very fragile family unity allowed. God was in charge and God was said to be in charge, but God's persistent habit of resisting making himself present in space and time, made the 12 tribes nervous. But the people's call for a king, and not just any king, and not a king like God was, but, and this is the important point, they're calling for a king just like all the nations have. They want a king who is the same as the king of the other nations around them. This is the important point. They could have been calling for a prophet. The important point is they want someone to rule them who is a strong man like the nations around them. This makes Samuel nervous, and Samuel goes to prayer, as Samuel does when things make him nervous. Now, God's response to his prayers likely surprised him. God says, Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Obey their voice. Only, only, you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. If they want a king, just like the others have, a king like everybody else, if they were so filled with imitative desire that what they want is what they see that the others have got, then they shall have it, and they shall get it. And if they think that peace and prosperity will attend them, then they will have time to think again and again and again. Kings like to rule. And kings, like nations, get jealous of one another. Kings, like nations, and like kids in a toy store fighting over the same toy, go to war with one another constantly. They do so today, and every, even where kings more and more are no more, the nations are still furiously raging. Hannah, Samuel's mother, one of the great figures in Scripture, Hannah, and she's so far eclipses the rather pathetic group of males who surround her, has this to say when her miracle pregnancy is announced, when she is announced to be bearing the child Samuel. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. 
He lifts the needy from the ash heap and makes them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. The fruit doesn't fall far from the tree, but no one was asking Hannah's advice or, in a sense, Samuel's at this point. We leave this state. We know how it turns out. They get one good king out of the deal, and then they pay, and they pay, and they pay. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has come, finally, as king and God, and he is seeking to bring about his kingdom, the kingdom of God. Those two concepts, king and God, do not go well together in the historical record. As before, the people of Israel, which is now Judea, because Israel has been eradicated, do not want God to be king. We have no king but Caesar, they will say when the question is put to them. And the fact that Caesar himself has no difficulty in seeing himself as both God and king does not perplex them. Jesus is standing before them to show them, nevertheless, how it is done, how you bring king and God together, how Hannah's rehearsal of the great reversal, so strikingly reminiscent of his mother Mary's Magnificat, charts the way exactly that God will be king and that God's subjects will live out their share of rulership that is delegated to them. It is not going well as Jesus stands here. The crowd, just a few events shy of becoming a mob, think that Jesus is mad, so they say. His exorcisms have captured their attention, but their own leaders, their scribes and priests, have decided that Jesus' power comes from the Satan, the accuser. In Jesus' culture, this is a damning accusation. Nowadays, I'm not sure about that. But then, such an accusation requires a defense, which Jesus gives. He repudiates the charge. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. He defends himself against any accusation of complicity. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. He asserts that if anyone has been victimized, harmed by what he has done, it is Satan himself. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. And Jesus invokes God's own authority and solemnly warns his accusers not to trivialize it. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. In all this, Jesus' words ring with worldly as well as spiritual wisdom. He reiterates some basic truths. He knows how the world goes and how things are done by kings in the real world. In The Scapegoat, René Girard writes, the idea that a divided community is headed for destruction would appear to be true, but it's only a piece of common sense. But the kingdom of Satan is not one kingdom among others. The Gospels state explicitly that Satan is the principle of every kingdom, that the kingdom of Satan is the model for every worldly kingdom. What Jesus is really up against, what God is up against, 
when Samuel was required to go off in search of Saul, anointing horn in hand, is the fact that behind all the forces that make up the real world, that order the laws that dictate how things will go, the unseen realities which are expressed often in covert form in the statutes set forth by whatever legislative body a nation will allow, all these manifestations are expressions of an ongoing battle between the kingdom of God and the princes of this world as it is and where it is going. It is Satan, not Caesar, that Jesus ultimately confronts. And the only power that can bind Satan, the only power in heaven and on earth and under the earth before whom all things do bow and obey, is the power of the God who hangs in weakness and the agony of God-forsakenness upon the cross, a scandal to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. Yes, a great reversal is coming. Hannah's words will ring true, but first they ring hollow. And when the crowds, with the consent of Caesar, Herod, and Caiaphas, converge upon Jesus and nail him to that tree, Jesus, King of the Jews, placarded over his head, then at that moment and that moment only do the heavens lose their lights, and the window into which we gazed at God becomes a mirror in which we see the horror of our own folly. God in the hand of angry sinners, a far more troubling prescription of what the reality is than sinners in the hands of an angry God, let me assure you. God in the hands of angry sinners, the horror of our own folly of the futility in which we are bound, striving and sweating blood to satisfy desires that only the prince of this world could have grafted within our hearts without our knowing. The ultimate folly, which permits us to see in kings and empires even a fleeting glimpse of God's glory, of God's kingdom, the ultimate grace, which allows us to see in a man dead and bleeding upon a cross the awesome scale of God's glory and the scope of God's kingdom. Elizabeth II Queen Deo Gratia, as the coin with her inscription says, by the grace of God, is a believer, faithful and strong by all accounts, poised to reign over an ever more secular state in her devotion to her one true Lord. And in that humility and devotion, she continues to offer us glimpses of God's reign through hers, for those with eyes to see, for those with eyes of faith. Let us pray that we may see in our rulers signs of Christ's rule as well. Let us pray in this election year for nothing less. Amen.